Hello, this is Brighter Evening, a podcast where we discuss fun, food, and ideas to make the world brighter. Good evening. My name is Josh, and this is Brighter Evening. I hope this evening is finding you well. In a previous episode, we had talked about um, reforming healthcare. We talked about some of the causes of high medical costs, right? The you know fact that it's just gone up, probably something involving a lot of administrators, a limited number of doctors, medications, fee-for-service, price opacity. We talked about some of the different payment methods and um, even the different types of doctors. Uh, so now we're going to get into the cost of medicine. Um, and the, the primary driver of the cost of medicine is that medical research is very expensive. Um, there's a lot of reasons for it. One is it requires highly specialized people who've done a tremendous amount of schooling and have a tremendous amount of knowledge. And so these highly specialized people are obviously in demand in the different pharmaceutical companies. Um, they take on a lot of personal debt and so forth, so they're expensive staff workers. And it takes a long time to do this research. In many cases, um, you know, it can take years just to do the research. And if the research pans out, maybe maybe that's good, but a lot of research doesn't, right? You might spend three, four, five years researching a drug to find out that it's ineffective. Um, you might find out that it doesn't work for certain cases or it has bad side effects. Um, you know, you might spend a lot of time in the laboratory stage before you even get to an animal model or a human model. Um, some drugs are actually difficult to produce or expensive to produce in other ways, right? They they involve difficult processes and they take time to scale up production. Um, but in general, research is the big cost driver because I don't know the, the exact numbers, but you know I'd imagine if you went and looked at 30 pieces of research, maybe only one becomes a finished drug. And so to, to pay for that, there's got to be funding from somewhere. If you're going to do it through government means, well, then the government's going to pay through, for it through tax dollars. If you're going to do it through the private sector, then these companies are taking a big risk, and they're going to expect the large payoff to be able to fund ongoing research. And that's something that we want to do, right? We want to have ongoing research. There are some other issues that fall into um, the cost of medicine besides that. One is pharmacy benefit managers. There's only a handful of companies that do this job. Uh, CVS Caremark is actually one of them. Um, they, CVS purchased a pharmacy benefit manager, but there are others. And they sit, sit in between the drug companies and the pharmacies. Um, and their job is to kind of be the drug wholesaler and comply with a bunch of regulations and things like that. And so... Pharmacy benefit managers, there are only being so many of them, and the pharmacies, there's only being so many of them as well. You end up with a situation where there's not a lot of competition. And competition is very difficult when it comes to a drug that you need. right? It's, it's not like I can go to the pharmacy and they say, well, you know, this drug is, uh, is the one your doctor said, and it's uh, you know, $1,000 per dose. And I say, well, you know... Instead of giving me that, can you give me aspirin, right? It, it doesn't work that way, right? You have to get a drug that treats your problem. And you can work with your doctor to change which one you take, but typically you're purchasing through your insurance carrier, and this is another third-party payer problem. You're going to you know, 
do that to a certain extent based on what it costs you, but what it costs the insurance company is going to vary, right? They're going to pay a certain portion of it as well. They've negotiated things down, and so you're going to be kind of stuck on in the middle there, right? The the insurance company's a large part of the reason you decide to do what you do in terms of changing medicines. And really, you'd rather just have it be the conversation between you and your doctor that make that decision. If the doctor says, hey, we could try one of these three medicines, and you try one and it works, great. And if it doesn't work, you try something else. That's the direction you want to go. But you don't really have a choice. And that's what makes competition difficult. Now, a lot of countries have regulations that limit drug costs. And that leads to higher prices in places that don't. Right? And that that's reasonable. Uh, maybe it's not a reasonable outcome, but it's a reasonable thing to understand. If you're country X and you say, well, I'm not going to allow the drug companies to charge more than $10 a dose. That seems anything higher than that is too high. You're certainly, as a country, able to pass a law like that. And the drug companies have no choice but to comply or not sell in your country. And if the manufacturing cost isn't that high, right? it's not one that requires some difficult chemical process to produce, or a manual process, they'll probably do it, because it's better than not doing it. But they still need to pay for the other research that they did that maybe didn't pan out. Right? They need to pay for all the research that they do, and so you add that regulation, and you know, you're know you going to have one of a few things happen, right? The cost of researching medicines is going to become too high, and so they're going to reduce the amount of research that's done. Um... So what happens? Well, they're going to raise the prices in places that don't have that regulation to cover the cost. And the big market that, that is that is the United States. So in some sense, United States healthcare consumers are subsidizing medical research for the entire world, or a large part of the world. Um, that's certainly not a, a great outcome, um, but you can understand how we got there. And so we have to figure out what to do about that. If we adopt in the United States that regulation, there is going to be less less cost, but there's also going to be less new medicine, right? There's going to be less research because there's not going to be a way to recoup it. Um, we could reduce the cost of bringing drugs to market through the FDA, but that could possibly mean less safety in medicine, right? That's one of the concerns with the vaccine for um, SARS-CoV-2, the COVID-19 virus, um, you know, we want to fast-track the vaccine, but you don't want to create the vaccine and find out that, well, it didn't quite match enough parts of the DNA and it makes people sicker, or it, uh, you know, in one in a thousand people, it causes some horrible side effect, right? Like, those are things we have to test, and it takes a long time to go through the chemical processes and the testing and the follow-up to ensure that we're producing something safe. Um, and so, you know, there are some regulations that could be changed to improve things. Um, I don't I don't have a good link to this in the show notes, but in the nuclear industry, there were some changes in the law that didn't make things less safe, but improved the efficiency of the process and were able to bring new nuclear plants to market more quickly. And really, it just involved allowing certain things to happen in parallel that needed to happen sequentially before. Just, just by allowing two different... Uh, studies and reports to be written at the same time, you end up with some increased benefits, right? And so there are some really good reasons in 
testing medicines that we do things sequentially. Um, you know, you start maybe with an animal model, then a limited human trial, then a bigger human trial, then an even larger one, right? Like, you don't want to start with a large human trial and cause lots of problems for people. Even medicines that do get through this process, sometimes when they get to a large enough group, you find out that there are side effects you didn't know about or didn't track. One that comes to my mind is Seldane. It was uh, an allergy medicine, and apparently it worked great. Um, it, was, it was a fantastic medicine for the people who are suffering from you know allergies and stuffy noses and stuff. But also, as it turned out, over a prolonged period of time, it actually weakened one of the valves in the heart and could cause heart attacks. It's something that took a long time to show up. So even with rigorous testing, some things can slip through. And so if we, we reduce the testing, that's kind of the risk. I'm not an expert in the FDA approval process, but you can certainly understand that there may be some areas to to speed things up by changing the system. But there may also be some areas where you can't change it safely. Um, there are certainly certainly changes that should be made um, in, in general for certain things to improve things. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, if you require higher prices somewhere else, you're going to limit that availability, right? So just the fact that a medicine goes up in price means that less people are going to be able to afford it. And that's, that's kind of a, a bad outcome. And we see that with companies in the United States that, you know, charge a lot for certain medicines and they've got discount programs and stuff, but it's, it's not a great way to operate. Um, there are some options though, right? You could, you could do things like, um, have coordination between medical companies, academic centers and uh, government research centers like the National Institute of Health. You know, they coordinate more closely. Maybe there's some duplicate effort that could be Deduplicated, that would that would definitely be beneficial. Um, another another area that would really make sense to improve in terms of the cost of medicine is understanding the the systemic nature of things. Right, one of the problems in our system today is that for insurance companies, it's better and and hospitals and everything else, it's better to do fee for because of fee for service more treatment over a longer period of time rather than curing a disease and very few diseases can actually be cured if you really stop and think about it. Your body does the curing in most diseases, right? It heals. But medicines do help enhance things, right? Or they, they solve certain problems. And one of the problems that um, we, we have in the healthcare system is we don't do comparative effectiveness research. Now, in the debate about the Affordable Care Act, this is one of the things that they were supposed to do. Um, and it's a simple idea. Let's say that there are, you know, three painkillers and you want to find out which one works best for people who just had surgery. You could do research where you give, you know, of these three painkillers, uh, you know, four groups, one that's on a placebo and one that's got drug A, one's got drug B and one's got drug C, and you could statistically determine if one of them is more effective, more addictive, uh, you know, has worse side effects. And and then based on that, we can give guidance to the medical professionals, the doctors and, and so forth, to look into what medicines are appropriate. And so they'll start with one that's most likely to be effective and move down to ones that are less likely to be effective, but, you know, the primary ones didn't work for a particular person. And that's what you would actually want out of out of your visit to a doctor. 
you don't want to be going to the doctor and saying, uh, gee, well, this one's the, the newest. Can I get the newest? And the doctor goes, yeah, yeah, we'll give you the newest one. And turns out the newest one doesn't work as well as the old one. But that is what happens. Um, in a lot of cases, if you go to a doctor, they do understand the differences in, in how some of these drugs operate. And they are, they're not just kind of throwing darts at a wall or anything, but we don't have solid research on what's better and and why, right? We don't have an empirical basis for it. So we have a theoretical basis, and it's untested. And comparative effectiveness research was taken out of the Affordable Care Act because of, uh, you know, some some political reasons. I'm sure there were some lobbies involved that were, you know, trying to maintain their um, their position. So that's that's kind of the the big issue, I think. You know, between that and reducing the cost of getting drugs to market. Um, you know, simplifying the process in any way that's appropriate and better coordination, I think that's a direction you could go to start tackling the cost of medicine. Uh, another area that, you know, seems particularly uh, relevant today is the public health system in the United States. One thing very few people know that, that I'm aware of is that there is a fifth uniform service, the public health service, right? So they are a branch of the military, you know, they, they carry weapons, they wear uniforms, and their job is to go do public health stuff. And the public health service does good work. But by and large, our efforts at a federal level are focused on curing acute conditions, right? It's it's the equivalent of a uh, help desk doing break fix. It's important, but the preventative maintenance, right? The preventative stuff that you do, that's the work of public health. It's looking at a higher systemic level and trying to figure out what can we do to reduce the average amount of disease that people have, right? And some of that's going to come down to, you know, straight public policy, regulating uh, trans fats or, um, you know, requiring that nutrition labels are in place, things like that. Those are public health policies, but there's sort of a, a gap between that and you know the job of the CDC and the job of the NIH and, and these different agencies where we don't have a, a kind of coherent public health policy in many cases. Uh, there's an Office of Disaster Medicine, for example, in the United States that's staffed with like five people. And that's as many people as we can afford, apparently, to study and... Um, define protocols, and operate for disasters, medicine in disasters. And so they, they do good work. You know, the, the doctor in charge of it is, is the expert in the field, but he's only one person. So that's, I mean, that's something to consider, right? There's different parts of this where we're not really geared for, for example, a pandemic like we're in right now. Um, we don't have a good way to deal with that. And that's problematic, we don't have a um, a system for coordinating well between state public health agencies. And you can kind of get a feeling for that lack of leadership right now because there's very different policies in different places. You know, some places are currently banning outdoor venues and some leaders are saying that, you know, it's not a big deal. Go out to the restaurants and, and enjoy a meal. And I, I feel for the restaurants today, right, because they're not getting the customers they normally do. 
but we need to have a co coherent policy. And right now it's very difficult to do for a variety of reasons. I think the biggest one is we don't have a, a true public health system in place for large-scale problems in the United States. Um, I don't know how many countries really do. And large-scale problems, if you stop and think about it, there's there's a lot of types, right? It's not just this big, acute, scary thing that's happening with a pandemic, right? It's not just COVID-19. There's also things like the obesity rate in the country. You know, we, we look at that as a personal failing, but there's more to it than that because there are countries that have more or less obesity depending on lifestyle factors that are common. So some of it's cultural, some of it's individual, some of it's probably down to regulation of what does and doesn't go into foods, right? We need to research that. We need to, to focus on it. And so if you had a public health agency, when there isn't a major public health emergency, they could be working on, on understanding this and providing policymakers valid, scientific, scientifically valid, beneficial information to make informed policy choices, right? And some of that's going to have to flow back to, um, you know, the constituents. Some of it's going to have to flow out to media sources, right? The communication is going to be key, and, and that's kind of a key part of public health, right? If you look at a public health curriculum, it includes communication and understanding communities. It includes grant writing. It's, it's really all about being able to function in this sort of government space, and communication is a key part of that. So I think if we had a better public health system, um, we could bring down the cost in general because we could reduce the total amount of illness. There are some illnesses you're not going to get away from, right? If you've got a congenital condition, you're just going to have it, and you know that's got to get treated. But things like obesity, right? The risks go up in a ton of categories for obesity, uh, right? It's heart conditions, breathing conditions, diabetes, uh, cancer, just across the board, right? And then, and then there are secondary things related to that. And so like each of those conditions. So if we tackled that problem specifically and found ways that made sense, and I don't know what those are, I, I haven't done enough research to say, but if we could find ways, um, and you know, maybe it comes down to city planning. I don't, I don't know, but if we can, we can improve people's health, that alone would improve the cost of healthcare, right? If you're getting sick less, you need less healthcare, it costs less. So the last issue I'd like to tackle, talking about um, healthcare and reforming healthcare, is price transparency and fee-for-service. I've referred to this concept a number of times already. Um, fee-for-service, again, is the idea that when you go to the doctor and, you know, the insurance company or Medicare or whatever is involved, the, this is a multi-party transaction. And so you or your insurance company are going to pay for the services that are rendered. So if they draw a blood test, that's one cost. If they talk to you about one, you know, your um, achy arm, that's a different cost. If they check your your ears and then do a strep test, that's another cost. They they charge you for each of those. And it makes sense because that's kind of how you charge things in general, right? Kind of piecework. You go, you go uh, hire a contractor to, you know, do something in your house, say an electrician. They're probably going to charge you a certain cost per outlet or a cost per hour or something like that. But fee for service in medicine seems to consistently raise costs. Now, why is that? 
Well, the there's a variety of reasons, but at the end of the day, everyone is going to act on their own self-interest, right? That's going to be at least some part of it. If you're a doctor, it pays to do more tests, not less, especially in the concept, you know, this concept of defensive medicine where you do a test so that you don't get sued later, even if you don't think it's medically necessary. Um, doing doing any sort of test, it's going to benefit their practice and help them make more money. And I don't mean to imply that doctors are particularly greedy, but it's very easy to justify in your mind that you're doing the right thing when it benefits you. And the evidence is consistent that fee-for-service raises cost. If you go, if you go look it up, um, you'll, you'll find the same thing, right? Fee-for-service, they just run more, they do more services. And there are other models. Um, there are other models where you can pay for a particular condition and they do whatever services are appropriate. The Kaiser model is is a different model than that even, where they're kind of on both sides of the transaction, right? They're the insurance company and the provider, and so they don't have a benefit from doing more. They, they benefit from doing less, and so they're consistently less expensive. And it's also problematic doing fee-for-service because you go and you don't know what your costs are going to be as a patient. Um, you know, if you try to figure out from a hospital or a doctor's office what your costs are going to be, call up, they can't tell you. They're supposed to post some information on a website if they're a hospital, but it's very difficult to consume. And I mean, you know, you go to a go to an emergency room and you're in for a ton of surprises, right? I, I broke my foot a while back and, you know, the bills just kept coming from different, different doctors, different machines, different companies that happened to exist in there. I had a surgery at one point and there were three or four independent sort of companies, if you want to look at it that way, operating there. There was the surgeon, the anesthesiologist, the hospital center itself. Um, there was some other group, I think, involved. Like, all of that together, though, you know, even though, for me, it was one one thing. I was going in to get a surgery. For them, it was lots of stuff, right? Lots of groups, and so they all sent me a bill. And so, if I wanted to know up front what it was going to cost... No idea. And that makes it really difficult for you to, to do anything to bring down your health care costs. Right? First of all, you don't have a big incentive to because you're really looking at the insurance company to tell you where your costs are going to be. And second of all, even if you did want to, the doctor can't tell you. Right? So you add that to fee for service, it's a recipe for expensive health care, right? It's just gonna be expensive because the incentives are all aligned towards charging more money. Um, and insurance companies, they, they have the agreements with the providers. They hold all the cards, right? And that's why they tell you, oh, I get this, not that, because they get specific discounts, right? The, the raw rate or whatever is never charged if you have insurance. If you don't, there's a good chance they're going to have to write it down anyways, because there's no way you can afford their crazy prices. So what are the solutions for, for these sorts of problems? There's a few. The biggest one is to require transparent prices for the whole treatment. Um, that's, you know, that's a pretty simple one. So I call up the hospital. I say, hey, I uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm looking to get uh, knee surgery. How much do you charge for knee surgery? And they tell me a number. And then I call up another hospital. And they tell me different, you know, and I call three or four hospitals or whatever's in my area. And then I go look at the reviews. 
And I say, ah, well, this one that's rated well has pretty good prices. Let me go there. And, you know, then there's some economic pressure in delivering the healthcare efficiently. Um, that would definitely help things. Um, there are other models that would work too, right? I talked about the Kaiser system where their uh, incentives are aligned a certain way to, to make it less expensive. Um, you know, we talked about fee for treatment, right? Where you, you have a certain condition like this knee surgery you want to do fixed price and they take care of all the details. Another would be a subscription model where um, you pay a certain amount of money per month for access to the doctor and then the doctor provides you with what you need. Um, there was a doctor doing this but got shut down because he wasn't licensed as an insurance broker or whatever, insurance company. So, you know, there there are doctors and and business people trying to innovate but it's very difficult in a highly regulated environment. And it's rightly regulated, right? You don't want to have just anyone out there, you know, doing absolutely anything with medicine. You want to make sure that they have some level of training and and stuff. And so the the regulations, as you you know, as they often are, are kind of sitting there in the middle of the the middle of the road. And if you're not in the middle of the road, the regulations tend to be brittle. I read a story about you know this um, researcher who was trying to develop a, a COVID vaccine, and he was blocked in in many regards because the regulations were were uh, too brittle, too strict, and he couldn't push forward and get the you know get get the tests approved and different things, and so like. You, that that's where the regulations can kind of fail us is when it's not the middle of the road standard situation. You know, the whole system is built around this standard situation that typically happens, and maybe it happens sixty or seventy percent of the time. But for the times that you fall outside of that sixty or seventy percent, it's problematic. We need to find ways to be more flexible, um, and so you know, allowing for other models like subscription, like fee for treatment, like the the Kaiser model, which is actually allowed already. That that gives us some flexibility. Maybe there's other ways to be flexible, um, but we need to figure that out as well. Um, I, I think another part of this would be to make the information publicly accessible in a standardized format. So tra price transparency, standardized format, and then you can get aggregators the way that Google or Yelp or um, you know these these different companies are are aggregators, and so you can get your star ratings, your price ratings, and actually get a you know, get a reasonable idea as a consumer of what you're you're in for, because it's it's really overwhelming most of the time to try to figure this stuff out, and it's a hundred phone calls and a lot of research online. And if that could all be simplified, I think you know people would have a much easier time doing that kind of work and searching for things. So, those are the ideas: change our models, um, increase our residency spots. Um, improve our, our regulation and research, and particularly comparative effectiveness research. I think if we do these things, we're going to have a stronger, more cost-efficient healthcare system. Right now, uh, we're spending a tremendous percentage of our GDP on healthcare, and it's been growing much faster than the, um, the general rate of inflation for a long time, and that obviously can't continue forever. So at some point, some kind of change needs to be made. And I'd like to see some changes that don't break our whole system, that they allow it to evolve and 
and move quickly because an evolving system is a system that's going to be functional throughout. A system that breaks and has to be recreated is going to lead to a lot of uncertainty and operational problems. And the last thing you want in a healthcare situation is operational problems, right? We want things to run smoothly. So on that note, uh, it's it's still uh, early days of this pandemic. Stay inside, keep your hands clean, and stay safe out there. My name is Josh. Thanks for lif- listening. This is Brighter Evening. Thank you for listening to Brighter Evening. I hope I've made your evening brighter. You can subscribe to us by RSS on Google or Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information on the show or this episode, please visit brighterevening.com.